Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a tequila sunrise. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a daiquiri on this week's episode. We're going to be diving into the Watergate scandal, which shaped politics in America. Let's start with who Richard Nixon was and his political career prior to Watergate. Richard Milhouse Nixon was born on January 9, 1913 in Yorba Linda, California, to Hannah and Francis Nixon. His mother was a Quaker, and his father converted from Methodism to the Quaker faith. Nixon's upbringing was influenced by Quaker observances of the time, such as abstinence from alcohol, dancing, and swearing. After graduating with a Bachelor's of Art degree in history from Whittier College in 1934, Nixon was accepted at the new Duke University School of Law, which offered scholarships to top students, including Nixon. After graduating from Duke, Nixon initially hoped to join the FBI. He received no response to his letter of application and learned years later that he had been hired, but his appointment had been canceled at the last minute due to budget cuts. He returned to California and was admitted to the California Bar in 1937 and began practicing in Whittier. In 1949, Nixon began to consider running for the United States Senate against the Democratic incumbent Sheridan Downey. He officially announced it in November and went on to win. During the campaign, Nixon was first called quote-unquote tricky dick by his opponents for his campaign tactics. General Dwight D. Eisenhower was nominated for president by the Republicans in 1952. He had no strong preference for a vice presidential candidate, and Republican officeholders and party officials met in a quote-unquote smoke-filled room and nominated Nixon to the general who agreed to the senator's selection. Nixon's young age of 39, anti-communism stance, and political base in the large state of California were seen as major positives by the leaders. In mid-September, the Republican ticket faced a major crisis when the media reported that Nixon had a political fund maintained by his backers, which reimbursed him for political expenses. Such a fund was not illegal, but it exposed Nixon to allegations of a potential conflict of interest. With pressure building for Eisenhower to demand Nixon's resignation from the ticket, the senator went on to television to address the nation on September 23, 1952. The address later termed the checkers speech was heard by about 60 million Americans. Nixon emotionally defended himself, stating that the fund was not a secret, nor had donors received special favors. He painted himself as a man of modest means. His wife had no mink coat. Instead, she wore a respectable Republican cloth coat and a patriot. The speech was remembered for the gift which Nixon had received, but which he would not give back. Quote, unquote, a little cocker spaniel dog sent all the way from Texas, and our little girl Trisha, the six-year-old, named it Checkers. The speech proved effective, and Eisenhower and Nixon won that November. In 1960, Nixon launched his first campaign for President of the United States. Televised presidential debates made their debut as a political medium during the campaign. In the first of four such debates, Nixon appeared pale with a five o'clock shadow, in contrast to the photogenic 
Kennedy. Nixon's performance in the debate was perceived to be mediocre in the visual medium of television, though many listening on the radio thought Nixon had won. Nixon narrowly lost the election, with Kennedy winning the popular vote by only 112,827 votes. At the end of 1967, Nixon told his family he planned to run for president a second time. In a three-way race between Nixon, Hubert Humphreys, and American Independent Party candidate George Wallace, Nixon defeated Humphreys by nearly 500,000 votes. Nixon was inaugurated as president on January 20th, 1969. Nixon entered his name on the New Hampshire primary ballot on January 5th, 1972, effectively announcing his candidacy for re-election. The president had initially expected his Democratic opponent to be Massachusetts Senator Edward M. Kennedy, who was removed from contention after the July 1969 Chippequiddick accident. On June 10th, South Dakota Senator George McGovern won the California primary and secured the Democratic nomination. With some of his supporters believed to be in favor of drug legalization, McGovern was perceived as standing for quote-unquote amnesty, abortion, and acid. Nixon was ahead in most polls for the entire election cycle and was re-elected on November 7, 1972, in one of the largest landslide election victories in American history. He defeated McGovern with over 60% of the popular vote, losing only in Massachusetts and D.C. What the American public didn't know at the time was that Nixon and his team had been engaging in what would become the hallmark for political scandal. It started on January 27, 1972, when G. Gordon Liddy, finance counsel for the Committee for the Re-Election of the President, presented a campaign intelligence plan to the committee's acting chairman, Jeb Stuart Magruder, Attorney General John Mitchell, and Presidential Counsel John Dean that involved extensive illegal activities against the Democratic Party. Two months later, Mitchell approved a reduced version of the plan, including burglarizing the Democratic National Committee's headquarters at the Watergate Complex in Washington, D.C. Their plan was to photograph campaign documents and install listening devices in telephones. At the behest of G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt, McCord and his team of burglars prepared for the first Watergate break-in, which began on May 28th. Two phones inside the DNC headquarter offices were said to have been wiretapped. These were the phones of DNC Chairman Larry O'Brien and Robert Spencer Oliver. They successfully installed the listening devices, but soon found that they needed repairs. They planned a second break-in to fix the devices. On Saturday, June 17, 1972, Watergate Complex security guard Frank Wills noticed tape covering the latches on some of the complex's doors leading from the underground parking garage to several offices, which allowed the doors to close but stay unlocked. He removed the tape, believing it was nothing. When he returned a short time later and discovered that someone had retaped the locks, he called the police. Alfred Baldwin, who was serving as the lookout, was distracted watching TV and failed to observe the arrival of the police car in front of the hotel. Neither did he see the plainclothes officers investigating the DNC's sixth-floor suite of 29 offices. By the time Baldwin finally noticed unusual activity on the sixth floor and radioed the burglars, it was already too late. The police apprehended five men, later identified as Virgilio Gonzalez, Bernard Barker, James McCord, Eugenio Martinez, and Frank Sturgis. 
They were charged with attempted burglary and attempted interception of telephone and other communications. The Washington Post reported that, quote, police found lock pins and door jimmies, almost $2,300 in cash, most of it in $100 bills, with serial numbers in sequence, a shortwave receiver that could pick up police calls, 40 rolls of unexposed film, two 35mm cameras, and three pen-sized tear gas guns, end quote. The following morning, Sunday, June 18th, Liddy called Jeb Magruder, in Los Angeles and informed him that, quote, the four men arrested with McCord were Cuban freedom fighters who Howard Hunt had recruited, end quote. The Nixon organization and the White House quickly went to work to cover up the crime and any evidence that might have damaged the president and his re-election. The connection between the break-in and the re-election committee was highlighted by media coverage, in particular investigative coverage by the Washington Post, Time, and the New York Times. The coverage dramatically increased publicity and consequent political and legal repercussions. Relying heavily upon anonymous sources, Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein uncovered information suggesting that knowledge of the break-in and attempts to cover it up led deeply into the upper reaches of the Justice Department, FBI, CIA, and the White House. Woodward and Bernstein interviewed Judy Hoback Miller, the bookkeeper for Nixon's re-election campaign, who revealed to them information about the mishandling of funds and records being destroyed. Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward relied on an informant known as quote-unquote Deep Throat, later revealed to be Mark Felt, associate director of the FBI, to link men to the Nixon administration. Nixon downplayed the scandal as mere politics, calling news articles biased and misleading. A series of revelations made it clear that the committee to re-elect President Nixon and later the White House were involved in attempts to sabotage the Democrats. In July 1973, White House aide Alexander Butterfield testified under oath to Congress that Nixon had a secret taping system and recorded his conversations and phone calls in the Oval Office. These tapes were subpoenaed by Watergate Special Counsel Archibald Cox. Nixon did provide transcripts of the conversations, but not the actual tapes, citing executive privilege. Though Nixon lost much popular support, even from within his own party, he rejected accusations of wrongdoing and vowed to stay in office. He admitted he had made mistakes, but insisted that he had no prior knowledge, did not break any laws, and did not learn of the cover-up until early 1973. On October 10, 1973, Vice President Agnew resigned for reasons unrelated to Watergate. He was convicted on charges of bribery, tax evasion, and money laundering laundering during his tenure as governor of Maryland. Believing his first choice, John Connolly, would not be confirmed by Congress, Nixon chose Gerald Ford, minority leader of the House of Representatives, to replace Agnew. On November 17, 1973, during a televised question and answer session with 400 Associated Press managing editors, Nixon said, quote, People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got, end quote. The legal battle over the tapes continued through early 1974, and in April, Nixon announced the release of 1,200 pages of transcripts of White House conversations between himself and his aides. The House Judiciary Committee opened impeachment hearings against the president on May 9, 1974. These hearings culminated in votes for impeachment. 
On July 24th, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that the full tapes, not just transcripts, must be released. In a statement accompanying the release of what would be known as the quote-unquote smoking gun tape, on August 5th, 1974, Nixon accepted blame for misleading the country about when he had been told of White House involvement, stating that it was a lapse of memory. In light of his loss of political support and the near certainty that he would be impeached and removed, from office, Nixon resigned the presidency on August 9, 1974, after addressing the nation on television the previous evening. The resignation speech was delivered from the Oval Office and carried live on radio and television. Nixon said he was resigning for the good of the country and asked the nation to support the new president, Gerald Ford. Nixon went on to review the accomplishments of his presidency, especially in foreign policy, and at the time of recording, Nixon is the only United States president to ever resign. The Ford White House considered a pardon of Nixon, but it would be unpopular in the country. Nixon, contacted by Ford emissaries, was initially reluctant to accept the pardon, but then agreed to do so. Ford, however, insisted on a statement of contrition. Nixon felt he had not committed any crimes and should not have to issue such a document. Ford eventually agreed, and on September 8, 1974, he granted Nixon a, quote, full, free, and absolute pardon, end quote, that ended any possibility of indictment. Nixon then released a statement that read, quote, I was wrong in not acting more decisively and more forthrightly in dealing with Watergate, particularly when it reached the stage of, of judicial proceedings and grew from a political scandal into a national tragedy. No words can describe the depth of my regret and pain at the anguish my mistakes over Watergate have caused the nation and the presidency, a nation I love so deeply, and an institution I so greatly respect, end quote. The Nixon pardon was a pivotal moment in the Ford presidency. Historians believe that the controversy was one of the major reasons that Ford lost the election in 1976, and Ford agreed with that observation. The Watergate scandal resulted in 69 government officials being charged and 48 being found guilty. Despite the enormous impact of the Watergate scandal, the purpose of the break-in of the DNC offices has never been conclusively established. When Congress investigated the scope of the president's legal powers, it belatedly found that consecutive presidential administrations had declared the United States to be in a continuous, open-ended state of emergency since 1950. Congress enacted the National Emergencies Act in 1976 to regulate such declarations. The Watergate scandal left such an impression on the national and international consciousness that many scandals since then have been labeled with the, quote, gate suffix. Discussed with the revelations about Watergate, the Republican Party and Nixon strongly affected results of the November 1974 Senate and House elections, which took place three months after Nixon's resignation. The Democrats gained five seats in the Senate and 49 in the House. The newcomers were nicknamed, quote, unquote, Watergate babies. Congress passed legislation that changed campaign financing to amend the Freedom of Information Act, as well as to require financial disclosures by government officials via the Ethics in Government Act. Other types of disclosures, such as releasing recent income tax forms, became expected, though not legally required. Presidents since Franklin D. Roosevelt have recorded many of their conversations, but the practice purportedly ended after Watergate. On April 22, 1994, Richard Milhouse Nixon died after suffering a stroke at the age of 81. 
The funeral service was held on Wednesday, April 27th on the grounds of the Nixon Library. The service was attended by over 4,000 people, including family members, President Bill Clinton and his wife Hillary, former presidents and first ladies George and Barbara Bush, Ronald and Nancy Reagan, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, and Gerald and Betty Ford. Jenny, what are your thoughts on Richard Nixon and the Watergate scandal? He's definitely a super sketchy guy, and I never knew about the campaign financing things when he or before he became vice president, and that was really interesting. It's a shame that all this happened because he did do some good stuff, like we said, with foreign policy. He established the Environmental Protection Agency, and he established OSHA, which we're going to talk about on our next episode. But he has a bad, disgraced legacy for a good reason. He earned it. He never told the truth and that's what the American people want to hear. He should definitely not have been pardoned in my opinion. I think that's why people have very little faith in the government because it seems like everyone is kind of like looking out for people within their party or like their buddies and there isn't ever really true accountability. It's wild that we don't know the purpose of the break-in still how many years later. And it it really makes me wonder what other instances of break-ins or corruption, whatnot, have happened that the public is never going to be made aware of. I think every government official is probably implicit in something or other, whether it's like directly implicit or part of something. I don't know. It's really interesting to me too how everything lined up for them to get caught. That the security guard noticed the tape and then when he noticed it retape, he acted on it and that the cops were plainclothes cops, which some people have said if they weren't, we never would have known about Watergate. It's so interesting to me how, you know, stuff like that works out. If these little seemingly like insignificant things didn't happen, how history would be so different. Yeah, I definitely think that when it comes to Watergate, it really shows how much one incident can totally overshadow everything that you've ever done. Because if you look at it from a purely political accomplishment stance, Nixon had a good presidency. You had the foreign policy accomplishments. You had domestically, even with things like the EPA. But then you had the fact that he was hungry for power and hungry to maintain power and hungry to take down his enemies. And that led him to ignore clear wrongdoings within his own staff. And that caused his downfall. I don't think that Watergate will ever be topped when it comes to the scandals that we think about. But I do think as time goes on, more recent scandals may be the go-to example that people use. I wanted to mention this and you reminded me, I didn't really know how popular he really was with the public before all of this stuff was going on, especially growing up in like a post-Nixon Watergate world. You know, we're so far removed from him and all we ever hear about is like what a shady dude he was when people really loved him. I kind of like the emotional stuff he said in that speech. And he did seem like more of an average person than like someone like John F. Kennedy, who was from such a wealthy legacy of people. While Watergate is typically cited as one of the biggest political scandals, it is not an isolated incident. As long as there have been politicians, there have been political scandals. Some involve financial irresponsibility, and others are more salacious in nature. We're going to look at two examples. 
First is the Pentagon Papers, and the Pentagon Papers revealed that the U.S. had secretly enlarged the scope of its actions in the Vietnam War with the bombings of nearby Cambodia and Laos, coastal raids on North Vietnam, and Marine Corps attacks, none of which were reported in the mainstream media. The most damaging revelations in the papers revealed that four administrations, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson, had misled the public regarding their intentions. For example, the Eisenhower administration actively worked against the Geneva Accords. The Kennedy administration knew of plans to overthrow South Vietnamese leader Ngo Dinh Diem before his death in a November 1963 coup. President Johnson had decided to expand the war while promising, quote-unquote, we seek no wider war during his 1964 presidential campaign, including plans to bomb North Vietnam well before the 1964 election. President Johnson had been outspoken against doing so during the election and claimed that his opponent, Barry Goldwater, was the one that wanted to bomb North Vietnam. And the other example we have is one that is probably well known to most Americans, and that is Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. This scandal involved the sitting U.S. President Bill Clinton and his 24-year-old White House intern, Monica. Lewinsky says she had sexual encounters with Bill Clinton on nine occasions from November 1995 to March of 1997. Lewinsky confided in Linda Tripp about her relationship with Clinton. Tripp persuaded Lewinsky to save the gifts Clinton had given to her and to not dry clean a semen-stained blue dress in order to keep it as a quote-unquote insurance policy. Tripp reported her conversations to literary agent Lucian Goldberg, who advised her to secretly record them, which Tripp began doing so in September 1997. Goldberg also urged Tripp to take the tapes to independent counsel Kenneth Starr and bring them to the attention of the people working on the Paula Jones case. In the fall of 1997, Goldberg began speaking to reporters about the tapes. News of the scandal first broke on January 17, 1998 on the Drudge Report. On January 26, President Clinton, standing with his wife, spoke at a White House press conference and issued a denial in which he said, quote, Now I have to get back to work on my State of the Union speech, and I worked on it until pretty late last night. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Glowinski. I've never told anybody to lie. Not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. In his deposition for the Jones lawsuit, Clinton denied having sexual relations with Lewinsky. Based on the evidence, a blue dress with Clinton's semen that Lewinsky provided, Starr concluded that the president's sworn testimony was false and perjurious. In December 1998, Clinton's Democratic political party was in the minority in both chambers of Congress. A few Democratic members of Congress and most of the opposition Republican Party claimed that Clinton giving false testimony and allegedly influencing Lewinsky's testimony were crimes of obstruction of justice and perjury and thus impeachable offenses. 
the House of Representatives voted to issue two articles of impeachment against him, which was followed by a 21-day trial in the Senate. Clinton was acquitted on both counts as neither received the necessary two-thirds majority vote of the senators present. There were also attempts to censure the president by the House of Representatives, but those attempts failed. Jenny, what do you think of these political scandals and those like them? I'll be honest, I did not really know anything about the Pentagon Papers before this, and I really want to look into them now because you can't get into wars for wrong reasons and do, I guess, more than what you intend to and you can get away with this. Obviously, like some war crimes and stuff were committed, I think, because of that. And it kind of reminds me about the war in Iraq, about the weapons of mass destruction that weren't actually there. I think I probably know more like surface level things about this case. We've obviously talked about Monica Lewinsky on this podcast before and her treatment. He's not the only president to have an affair while in office. It's obviously not okay to have an affair, whether you're in office or like if you're a normal person like affairs are not cool but he did lie about it I don't know if it's like an impeachable thing just to lie about having an affair you know I definitely agree with you and the weirdest thing is when reading over his deposition and like how he technically lied it was oh I thought that that meant giving oral sex but I never gave oral sex I received it and that meant that I didn't know I was lying they asked you if you had sexual relations with her and you lied you lied to the american people you lied to your wife for a long time just admit it and i feel like if he had been honest in the beginning he probably wouldn't have been impeached in the first place yeah that's probably a good point and that's kind of like the richard nixon thing like the lies upon lies upon lies like that's what gets you in trouble you can't keep lying forever that wraps up this week's case Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about Richard Nixon and the Watergate scandal. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the Radium Girls. As always, stay safe.